0: This episode of the Tony Robbins Podcast is brought to you by Tony Robbins Results Coaching. Are you ready to experience an extraordinary quality of life? Or maybe you're already doing well, but you know you can take your life to a whole new level. To do that, you have to set yourself up to win. You need a process, a way to consistently grow and produce the results that you need. That's what a Tony Robbins Results Coach can do for you. Whatever area in your life you want to change, your relationship, your health, your career, your business... Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. Tony Robbins' results coaches are hand-selected and trained by the master of coaching, Tony Robbins himself, to have the skills that will empower you with supreme focus, powerful insight, and the accountability needed to achieve everything you've ever dreamed. To help you get started, Tony is offering podcast listeners a free results coaching strategy session with one of his top coaches, It's a $200 value, and you're getting it for free. Visit TonyRobbins.com slash results. Schedule that free session today. Welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. I'm Anna York, Editorial Director for Robbins Research International. Today, we're bringing you a special episode from Business Insider's podcast, Success, How I Did It. A few weeks ago, BI reporter Rich Filoni traveled to Fiji to talk with Tony by the ocean about his life and career. If you like this show, subscribe for more episodes, just search for Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. Now here's Tony with Rich.
1: Robins equals results, right? I can produce that result and don't pay me if I don't. And I hated motivator. It's never been a motivator. Motivation's like a warm bath, you, know, you should take a bath probably, but you need more than that. You need strategy. And so I was a strategist, but nobody responded to that. So I was like, okay, what am I? I'm a coach. I'm not a guru. As an athlete, I had great coaches. And I was a better athlete than many of them, but they still were better than I was as a coach because they could see what I couldn't see. And so I thought that's great because I'm not better than anybody, but I do have these skills and I can help people. And so that part started to grow. And then all of a sudden, right when I was about to give it up, I was on Larry King Live and I worked with, they're asking me about working with the president. And he's like, what is this coach thing? You're not a coach. You don't coach teams. I said, I actually do coach teams, many of them. But I said, no, I'm. I'm it's a different kind of coach. And I was about to give it up. And then all of a sudden, everybody was a coach. Therapists started calling themselves coaches. <laughs> business people were, it became a term of art. Yeah, yeah. And so today, that's what, what I see myself as. I'm obviously a businessman. I'm a father. Mm-hmm. I'm a lot of things. But I really see myself as, I'm a business coach. I'm a life coach. I'm a person yep. that really helps people produce peak performance.
2: Something that you've been open about over the last 30 plus years is that Your upbringing, you had a lot of difficulties. It was rough. At 17, you ran away from home, had to spend time working as a janitor. At some point in your late teens, you meet the motivational speaker, Jim Rohn. Yes. And then, uh, by the time you're in your early 20s, you're making half a million dollars a year what kind of happened in between there? What did you learn from Ron and other mentors that kind of got you
1: on this path? Just to clarify, I never spoke about this until my mother passed away. And I'd even talk about it then. But I was in New York and I was dealing with a group of kids that were physically abused. And I was trying to share with them that they could still make their life the way they wanted. They, they're not damaged goods. And I could just see in their eyes that here's this tall white guy who's seemingly wealthy. And they couldn't relate. And so I finally just unloaded and I told them about having my head beat against the wall till I bled, my mom pouring liquid soap down my throat till I threw up because she thought I was lying and I wasn't. It's so crazy when the person you love most is trying to harm you. She wasn't a bad human being, she loved me, but the problem was she abused drugs and prescription drugs and alcohol so much that it changes your personality. And so I had to protect my brother and sister. So I became a practical psychologist just out of necessity. I had to understand. Just as a kid. As a a little kid, like how do I protect them from getting hurt? I could take some of the hits, but I had to be able to anticipate her states, her emotion, what would shift her, what's going on in her psychology. And then by the time I was in junior high school, I was obsessed with wanting to know the difference in people's lives because we grew up in a very tough environment but i went to a i thought was a wealthy school it was actually lower middle class but, but compared to our life it looked that way and we were lying the other side of the tracks and so for me it was like why are these people having such a beautiful life and we're not i had four different fathers and i'm like mom i'm confused and and so it made me obsessed and want to know the difference in people. And why is the most popular kid in school so mean? <laughs> you know, and yet he's the most popular kid. So I started reading books. That's where it started, even before Roan. I, I took a speed reading class, and I set a goal to read a book a day. I didn't do that. But in seven years, I read more than 700 books in the year of human development, psychology, physiology, philosophy, and I tried to apply it. And then when I was 17, I went to this seminar. I was working as a janitor, and then I was in high school. And then to help support my family, also I'd work on the weekends, and I'd move people. And... There was a friend of our family who had been doing really poorly and now he was turning properties in California at a time when that was going really well. So I'm moving and we get a little break and I said, my dad said you used to be such a loser and how come you're so successful now?" You know, only a kid could say that stuff. Yeah. And the guy looks at me and goes, your dad said what? And Long story short, he goes, well, I went to this seminar, this man named Jim Rohn. I said, what's a seminar? He goes, well, a man takes everything he's learned in 20, 30 years of his life and he pours it in like four hours and you get to save a decade or two. And I said, wow, I'd like to go to one of those. Could you get me in? He said, yeah. And then he didn't say any more. I said, well, would you? And he said, no. And I said, why not? He goes, because you won't value it. I said, well, how much does it cost? And he said, and it was $35, and I was making $40 a week as a janitor. And I said, that's a week's pay. He goes, well, then go waste 10 or 20 years doing it on your own. I made this big decision, you know, to spend a week's pay to go to this event. And I sat there and I was mesmerized. And that's what started the game for me.
2: And when you were forming your own ideas, kind of your own system, yes, how long did that take? Did you plan this out? Still going on. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I set a goal when I was a sophomore in high school, so I said in my 20s, I want to be able to help any individual that I want to be able to help to change anything. If they're committed and I'm committed, I want to have the skills to do it. In my 30s, I want to be able to do that with small groups of people simultaneously so I could scale and help more people. I said, you know, in my 40s, I want to do it with large groups in my 50s, organizations in my 60s. Maybe I'd work in government, become a congressman, a senator, maybe eventually run for a larger office. And it was like my whole plan. And I got ahead of that schedule uh, very quickly. But it pretty much has been the path that I've been on. I'm just a little further ahead. I don't know that I want to work in government anymore. I'd rather advise because I've worked with multiple presidents, and the system is not something I'm terribly excited about. But I think that vision is what really started me and then when I started developing these skills where I could wipe out a phobia in an hour and therapists were saying it would take five six seven years I take their seven-year client and turn them around I used that as the way to build my brand and
2: in the early years as you were building this brand the way that you write about it in your first two books it almost sounds like you were touring the country in a van like a band would do very it, much it, how it was
1: it was a very very crazy life I used to do four of these weekend seminars a month literally and in between i would have to fill them so i would go do media to fill them and then i do a free guest event so i could show people that i really was the real thing and it wasn't bs i was working as hard as a human being could work that tempo hasn't changed i just have more diversity now more companies you know now i got 33 companies so my dance card is full four kids and three grandkids but i love that passionate lifestyle i love constantly growing i love seeing and feeling that you can have an impact and gradually it went from just coaching to actually running businesses because i had experiences that were life-changing and then after this
2: initial level of success in your early 20s things started to really accelerate you have your first book unlimited power becomes a bestseller but then the one in 91 awaken the giant within sells even more yes then in 88 you start doing these infomercials that become insanely popular yes You've said in the past that you were used to a schedule that was relentless, but at this point it kind of became exhausted. It did. How did you deal with a new level of celebrity and demand? Well, if I was just doing it for the money, it would've stopped.
1: You know, I was making more than a million dollars a year and then three and then four, and you know, the economics grew, but it wasn't really what drove me. I don't have to work another day in my life, thank God, but I'm in a place where I probably work as hard or harder today than I ever have, but I do it because I want to, not because I have to. It's like, what does a new machine work and play? I think the difference is purpose. When your vocation becomes your vacation, the old quote, you know, that's when you've made it. So I've always had that. So yeah, the celebrity, the demand from celebrity or people want something every minute from you has certainly increased, but I've never been frustrated or angry by it because it's a privilege. And so how do I deal with it? I train more intensely. I develop more tools to strengthen my body and my my mind. I just sharpen the saw even more so that I could cut through the limitations quicker.
2: We're here at Namale, which was one of your early investments. At one point in your 20s, did you realize, I have enough money now that I can actually make investments? And then what were you looking for to
1: invest in businesses or start your own? I wasn't focused on investing at that stage because I was, what, 24, I think, the first time I came here. And 29 is when I actually bought this place. And I didn't buy it because I wanted investment. I wasn't that financially oriented or intelligent, quite frankly. I just found this place to be heaven on earth. I'd been to many places and islands. It was really the culture here. Kids learn to sing in four-part harmony when they're four or five years old. The level of joy, like somebody drops dishes in the kitchen here, you know, most people look at me, they just start laughing uncontrollably. They're not making fun of the person. They just think it's the funniest thing in the world. It changed me so much. First, I just wanted to have a place here so I'd have to come back because I knew I'd get caught up on our normal life. And it's been an incredible balance for me. And
2: this is just one of many uh, businesses that you have I think a yes. lot of people, even those familiar with your career, would be surprised by how many companies that you either run or are invested in. Yes. How many do you have now and how much money does that generate?
1: 33 and they're over 5 billion. This year we should hit 6 billion in annual revenues out of it. But they're really diverse companies. So I only run 12 of those directly. But you know, to give you an idea, I'm very interested in things that change people's lives. You know, I'm involved with Bob Harari and stem cells, one you know, of the top guys in the world in that area. We're working with the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, kind of integrating, buying the Panama City Institute. I own, um, I'm own. i partners with Peter Guber and a group of my friends, to give you an idea, and virtual reality. We have Next VR. We have the exclusive rights for the NBA, which starts at the end of September. We're going to have Tuesday night NBA games. The very beginning of that, we have the UFC exclusive. We have Live Nation for all concerts, so you can experience it a whole other way. I'm one of the owners of the LEFC, the new you know, Major League soccer franchise, and being a part of creating that and building that is really fun. I have an esports team, Team Liquid, We just won Dota, so went from last place to first and uh, generated more money than any esports team in history on that day. So I love the challenge of being involved in these things. And I love being surrounded by people that are geniuses in their own rights, who are wickedly smart, learning from them, growing, adding my two cents to it and helping those businesses to grow. And you also have
2: your foundation that you run. And that seems very connected with your whole coaching philosophy related even to your own personal life is there a common thread
1: between those what started me on this journey really more than anything else was when i was 11 years old and we had no money and no food it was thanksgiving which magnifies the situation massively i go to the door and there's a guy standing there and he's got two giant bags of groceries in his hands and he had a pot on the ground a big black pot with an uncooked turkey in it my father always told us no one gives a damn you know and i developed a new belief that day that strangers care if strangers care about me and my family, I wanted to do something. So that day I said, someday I'm going to feed families. So when I was 17, I fed two families and next year four. And I, my goal was double it every year. And then about, gosh, what, five, six years ago when I was writing Money Master the Game, I'm interviewing 50 billionaires that are literally the smartest financial people on earth, Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, Ray Dalio, I mean, the best of the best. And I'm watching Congress take our food stamps, which they now call the SNAP program, and Cut it by almost seven billion dollars, which if you figure it out, it means every family that gets support needs to go out without meals one week out of a month, 12 months out of the year. I said, how many people are you fed? I asked my team to go back and calculate. It was 42 million people over a lifetime. So what if I fed 50 million a year? And then I got more excited. I said, what if it's hundred million? And then I found Feeding America as my partner. They're the, the most efficient group there. They really deliver. And I fed hundred million people. And then I set a goal to feed a billion people. So in the last three years that we fed 300 million people, And I've had 350 million in total, and I'm gonna feed a billion people over the next seven years. And that's what my life is about. And then it's also coaching, education, my family and the rest of my life.
2: And something through this entire journey, whether it's working with your foundation or coaching, you've been able to reach so many people because of this tremendous network that you've built. Yes, And that spans business, Hollywood, professional sports, all kinds of things. financial world. Yeah. The financial world. How did you go about doing that? What was maybe like the domino that kicked that off at the beginning? And how did that build steam? How do you build relationships with all these people?
1: What I really like is changing a life, helping someone change a business, change a family and so forth. So in the beginning, I think it was because I was willing to only be paid for results. I wasn't a therapist. There were no such thing as coaches back then. You had to be a therapist and had to be paid for by somebody. And and I saw what therapists did, and I was honestly disturbed by it because I see people in therapy for five years, and I was like, "This is absurd." So, what was your pitch? How much were you charging? And then you the like, very beginning, I charged a thousand dollars for. It. I think I, my first sessions were five hundred bucks, and then I went to a thousand, and then five thousand, and then you know went up. But I get a million dollars a year to coach somebody now for a year. It wasn't about the money; it was about wanting people to know that you pay me nothing unless I produce the result. And so I got. Crazy stuff. Huge eating problems, drug addictions, depressions, you name it, but I was able to get results and then I was able to challenge traditional therapists in the early days, now I train them. Like, you know, these people, a lot of them call me their coach, but it's total bullshit. Like Mark Benioff says I'm his coach. He tells people that salesforce.com wouldn't exist without Tony Robbins and there's some truth in that, but it's a bit of an exaggeration. Mark did the whole goddamn thing, right? But I helped and I've been on this journey and so while I've been coaching them, you can only imagine how much I'm learning. I mean, God, you learn so much. You'd have to be an idiot not to pay attention or so filled with your own ego to think, I'm just going to teach them. That's dumb.
2: And one of these longtime clients and friends is the investor Paul Tudor Jones. Yes. And I read somewhere that you have daily correspondence. Does that still? Yes. Can you give an example maybe of what that back and forth would look like and then what checking in in person would sound like?
1: we're good friends, but I see him four times a year for our direct sessions, and they usually go for an hour and a half, two hours of total immersion. And every time I see him, it, the market's change, the world's changed, and my job is to help make sure he's maximizing his resources. And so, look, once you know the markets and once you know your business as well, somebody like Paul, I mean, Paul, for people that don't know it, in 1987, still the largest percentage stock market crash in a day, I mean, he made that year, you know, you had a 20% drop that day, and he made 50% for his clients that time during that year. So. It's beyond what people can imagine. But then he lost money, so my job is to figure out what's going on, turn it around. And then daily he sends me We have a checklist of what we measure. Everything from his nav to his weight, what's happened to his body, to his focus, to we have ratios of risk-reward that we're measuring. And then he does a narrative for me. And so I see that and then I know the pattern. If I need to do something right away, I can make a phone call or send him an email or fly there in person when it's necessary. But at this point, it doesn't take that much because it's, it's a refined machine. We've been working together 23 years, 24 years, I think now, to give you an idea. So that also helped me because he introduced me to Ray Dalio, who was a fan of my work. I didn't know that. But Ray is the da Vinci of investing. And the network got bigger. Jack Bogle, you know, Ray Kurzweil, all the people that you start to meet in that world when you really serve people and care about them and you're not trying to take you're trying to give, they're used to people taking from them. And so when you sincerely are giving, you develop a friendship, and that's what I'm more interested in. I'm not trying to get something from them, but I'm interested in learning from them. And in
2: 2014, when Money Master of the Game came out, that seemed to be the beginning of a new chapter in your career. And looking at that, that seemed to be around the same time since then when you are looking to connect with a younger audience as well, people now in their 20s and 30s. When you started this new chapter of your career, were you planning on trying to
1: reemerge or rekindle something? I think that one goal was just I wanted people to really learn the tools that could change. Because I taught finance for years and I work with people in their 20s, obviously, in all ages I've worked with. But I wanted to just take that to another level. And I also, quite frankly, was just angry. I was angry about the level of abuse I saw in 2008 that happened to people. I knew what happened. I made a fortune during that time because when things melt down and they're going to again, life is cyclical, it's one of the greatest opportunities in your life. And so I looked at that and said, I got to help people. And I hadn't written a book in 20 years. I hate writing books. I like the live, raw, real, it's always changing and I don't know what's going to happen. And you know, I'd be bored to death otherwise. So I didn't like it, but because I was mad... And because I had access, I said, I'm going to interview these 50 people. I'm going to bring the answers to people that are unassailable, not my answers. The answers are the best on earth. And so that's what started. And then people started saying, holy shit, this guy is a strategist. This guy knows how to take the most complex things and really teach them where you could really use them. And then also, I started to share more of what I was doing in my foundation. I wasn't doing that because I wasn't doing it for stars on my chart. But I realized that by talking about it, I got more help. I got matching funds, I got people to help out. And that doubled my impact, so I started doing that. I was conscious of I want to increase my impact, and to do that, I need people to know more of who I really was. And to do that, I needed to go to a different subject matter.
2: Speaking of comparing past and present, I was looking at "Awaken the Giant Within" from '91, and Donald Trump is a figure that recurs yeah. <laughs> repeatedly, actually, um, in that Back book. Then, yeah, I know. yeah, and that was at a point where his businesses were failing and it looked yeah. as if he might have bottomed out. Then of course, in the 2000s, he had this resurgence and today he's know, president of the United States. Looking at that kind of following his career and analyzing it yeah, and comparing that to your work with President Bill Clinton and looking at the other presidents that we've had Do you still see him as someone who's driven by the pain of being second best? And if you were able to talk to him on the phone right now, what would you
1: tell him? (laughs) I know the president quite well, and I also know Hillary quite well as well for many, many decades. We've never shared values, (laughs) he and I, but I... I respected his ability to turn it around. I remember the banks couldn't afford to have him go under, and he was was able to turn it around, and the market turned around, all those things turned around. So I respect somebody who can turn things around and be successful. I think the president's communication style is the most difficult thing because he actually does care. People that know him know he cares. If you see his kids and you get to know his kids, you can see there is a good man in there. But his style of communication, his combative approach, the elements of ego that are obviously there in all of us but seem to be more easy to see in the president sometimes than other people get in the way of his capacity to lead, unfortunately. I gave him his first big speech. In those days, he'd do like a couple hundred people. And he came, and we had 10,000 people. And he was floored, and he was scared, he was overwhelming. This was in the 90s? Mid-90s, I think it would be. And then he got addicted on it. But, you know, his talk was get a prenup. It was like, <laughs> you know, this is breakthrough, breakthrough insights. Because of the TV show he had, you know, he had such a following of people and people wanted to hear what he had to say. And I'm an American, so I want whoever's president to win. I've worked on both sides of the aisle always. And if he asked me to help him win, I'm, President Obama just reached out for some of the projects he's working on. And so I've worked with a variety of presidents over the years on both sides of the aisle and congressmen and senators. So I'm not into trying to demonize anybody. What I think is our problem is demonization. It used to be that people would fight like hell on the floor of the house and they'd go have a beer together. Now it's like you're radioactive if you talk to the other side, which keeps us from anything done. So I don't feed the narrative. I see the president's weaknesses and strengths. Like I hope everybody can, but not everybody does. And I'm here to help whoever, either side of the aisle. If someone's a good human being and wants help, i want to help them. I'm not politically driven on area. I'm an independent personally, and I vote for who I believe will make the biggest difference.
2: We're here at Namale for the Shopify build yes. a bigger business competition. You'll be spending a lot of time mentoring, up and coming yeah. entrepreneurs. Yeah. If you could distill one fundamental lesson from all of these talks that you're going to be having that you would give to an entrepreneur who wants to build an empire around their passion the way that you have, what would you tell them?
1: What do you think that common ground is? I always tell people life is the dance between what you desire most and what you fear most. Gotta be able to deal with the threshold of control. And what I mean by that is, do you ski or snowboard? I've skied. Okay, so most people are intermediate their whole life. What happens is they go, they learn a little bit, And then one day they think they're on a blue and it's a double black diamond. And they're like, holy shit, I'm going to die. And it looks like you're going to go off the edge of the cliff. And those moments are threshold of control moments. What I mean by that is you're going like out of control. You know you literally can die. You go over the edge. And so you have two choices. Focus like crazy on what you want and carve. Find the way to carve. Or focus on what you're afraid of. And if you do that, what you're going to do is slam yourself on the ground and try to hang on for dear life. Well, most people do the latter so they're terminally intermediate. They never become a master at anything. The people who become a masters are the ones that the fear is there and it's uncontrollable fear. Courage isn't that you're not afraid, it's you're scared shitless, but you decide that you're gonna focus on what you're here to do versus on what you fear, and you push yourself, and once you figure out how to do that first carve and then another, another, then all of a sudden the black diamond is your bitch. <laughs> you know, you're know, you no longer afraid of that, and, and you become a masterful skier or snowboarder or whatever it is. And when you learn how to overcome those instead of collapsing, I think that is the single most important thing. It's like Joe Gebbia from Airbnb. He was telling me, when he was getting coached by Y Combinator. The guy was saying to him, here's the key to success. Don't die. <laughs> Just don't die. And that's my way of saying that's what the threshold control is. If you can keep pushing through those thresholds, then all of a sudden the muscle in you grows. And what used to be hard to do is easy. If you don't deal with that threshold control, let's talk about the fact. Half all businesses are gone in a year, 80% are gone in five years, at the 10-year mark, 96% fail, 4% succeed, but that doesn't mean they make any money, they could be not profitable, they're just still standing. Business requires an unbelievable level of resilience inside you, and I tell everybody, the chokehold on the growth of your business is always the leader. It's always your psychology and your skills. 80% psychology, 20% skills. If you don't have the marketing skills, if you don't have the financial intelligence skills, if you don't have the recruiting skills, the training... And it's really hard for you to lead somebody else if you don't have fundamentally those skills. And so my wife is about teaching those skills and helping people change the psychology so that they live out of what's possible instead of out of their fear. And they produce the kind of certainty inside themselves so they really execute. Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Tony. I really enjoyed the time. Thanks for coming all this way to Fiji. Thank you.
0: The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckhite. Annie Org is our editorial director and occasional host. The podcast is produced by Carrie Song and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock for her creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.